box to box stoppage time. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Hello and welcome to Box to Box Stoppage Time. You're with Rob Gilbert, Michael Edgley and Derek Dyson for our podcast. It goes through our highlights of the week, our teams, our moments of the week and plenty more. I've set the boys up for an outrage. I, I let them both nominate their topics. Neither of them chose VAR. So I thought, I, I know we talked about it a lot at the beginning of the week, but it's still bubbling along and still a, a festering sore. So we, we'll have a chat about it. Uh, that is one of my agenda items throughout the week gentlemen but uh uh Derek um and Michael we'll start with you Derek um you know so game of the week I, I like the one that you've picked out mate so um so walk us through it yeah I've been meaning to talk about Brentford for a little while on the show because while there's a lot of hype around all the other Premier League teams in the top half Brentford sort of failed to get a mention really and, and they did a good job here against West Ham in what was a extremely entertaining 3-2 win. It's got a proper Premier League football um, at, it, at its best. Uh, uh, Mope put them in front, um, but then West Ham bounced back with an amazing goal from Mohamed Kouda. So if anyone hasn't seen it, it is worth uh, going and having a look. Um, and then it was his shot that hit the post that set up a Bowen uh, for 2-1. Um, and West Ham really should have made it three as well. Uh, absolute howler of a miss at the back post where two of the players, I think one of them was Ben Rama, Antonio got in each other's way, the goal gaping, but an own goal uh, got them back into the game and the player that was closest to that own goal, Nathan Collins, then scored an amazing header from a, a superb teasing cross, uh, make it 3-2. And the results of this is that Brentford now leap into ninth. They've gone past West Ham. And they're now three wins on the bounce, including that win at Chelsea a few weeks ago. Um, and once again, the gloom kind of descends on West Ham because that's three defeats and about on the bounce for them now. Uh, they're in mid-table. That's probably where they should be. Um, but yeah, West Ham do go hot and cold and it is a bit cold for them right now. But uh, what a job um, Thomas Frank has done at, at, at Brentford. I, I am surprised that he hasn't been poached by another Premier League or European team. But also, please, because, you know, I think we've discussed on this show before that sometimes this is a good fit between a manager and a club, and, and these two seem to be a very good fit. Uh, uh, fit. So well done to Brentford. It was a, a great game. Yeah, isn't it amazing how how ninth and eighth can be perceived so totally differently that Manchester United are just hanging on and and Eric Ten Hag is, is barely keeping his job while Thomas Frank at one point below them um, in the ladder uh, is um, is one of the uh, the the um, flavors ongoing flavors of the month in the competition now edge I know you mentioned this during the main show you've been licking your chops to talk about this one history making uh, Copa Libertadores final Fluminense their first ever win over Boca Juniors mate you love South American football so talk us through it Oh, it was just a fantastic spectacle. You know, um, the Americano was absolute. Americano was absolutely packed to the uh, to the struts of the foundations. Robert was that that many people at the game. But Fluminense won their very first Copa Libertadores uh, title um, in a history beating Boca Juniors. It was a very dramatic final. The veteran forward uh, German Cano opened the scoring for the Brazilians in the first half, sweeping home a first time volley. It was a beautiful goal. 
and then Boca Juniors' Lewis Advincula equalised with equally a stunning strike from distance to take the guy game into extra time. But it was the added period that uh, brought all the drama. Um, Fluminense substitute Brazilian John Kennedy. That's that's not a joke. That's his name. John Kennedy, who is Brazilian, powered in the winner before he was sent off for his second yellow card. And he got sent off because he jumped the fence to celebrate with the fans. And as he jumped the fence to continue playing, the referee said, no, you can't jump the fence. That's a yellow card, brother. And he got sent off, which just set everybody off completely. The crowd went completely bonkers. Um, that left um, Fluminese needing to hold on with uh, 10 men against Boca Juniors, who just really well and surely came for them. And it added a very feisty end of the game. Um, and that was uh, the Brazilian side uh, got over the line. In fact, a, a Boca Juniors player got sent off in all of the chaos in the last 30 seconds. But um, that Brazilian side will now qualify for the Club World Cup in December, the last edition where there's only seven sides qualify. Um, and they'll go to Saudi Arabia alongside um, the only other team that has qualified, and that's Premier League and European champions, Manchester City. So Fluminese, if um, you're not familiar with Brazilian football, Rob, and you're listening to this podcast, if you want to know the colours of Fluminese, just go to your local barbershop. <laughs> Red, white and blue. Okay, uh, so Edge, tell us, um, as somebody who who is well positioned to judge international competitions, for people who don't watch uh, a lot of South American club football, we all know how good they are at the national level, but most of their really good players end up in the top flight leagues around the world. What league that most of our listeners would be familiar with would you compare that competition to? Uh, that's a really good question because I think it, it grows a leg when the best teams from, I guess, it, well, it's the equivalent of the Asian Champions League, isn't it? And we... You know, when Ura Red Diamonds, um, you know, playing against one of the big Iranian teams in a in a final, it uh, or one of the big Saudi teams, it generates a lot of exposure because it's it's just huge. Well, these are you know, this is Asian Champions League on steroids, um, Copa Libertadores. So, um, look, it's you know, Boca Juniors, one of the most famous clubs in the world. Just you know, you name you know, Maradona's club. Tevez's club, you name it, the, all the Argentinians, the good ones, play for Boca Juniors. And obviously Fluminense comes from the rich football his, uh, football city of Rio de Janeiro and where, you know, um, Fluminense, Flamengo, Vasco mm -hmm. da Gama, Botafogo, mm -hmm. it's incredible. You know, it's the closest thing um, you can imagine. Imagine growing up in Sydney, Rob, and the rivalry of the rugby league, but imagine the passion and commitment of the people in Sydney to rugby league multiply it by about a hundred and you get somewhere near Rio de Janeiro. I mean, mm. these, you know, it's a city of six or seven million people, Rio de Janeiro, but every time one of these clubs play, there's over a hundred thousand people to game. Yeah. No, no. Incredible atmospheres. Um, it, uh, it was great to see. And, and, and we don't often see um, history making events happen um, in leagues around the world, let alone uh, a, a, a storied club like that winning uh, its first cup or, or title in, in a competition. So uh, yeah, just huge story. One final, if you get a chance, there's a fabulous photo of Fluminense's coach, Fernando Dinitz. Hmm. Um, when they the final whistle was blown, he took off uh, and ran across the field uh, in the aeroplane mode just with unbridled joy. You know, it was a mm. massive effort for this club. Mm. They're probably mm. one of the small... Well, they're a massive club by Australian standards, but by Brazilian standards, they're not as big mm. as Flamengo um, or Botafogo 
or Internazionale out of Porto Alegre. They're not as big as or Grêmio. That those clubs there, they're still a huge club. But it's a massive achievement for them, and uh, mm-hmm. the coach just celebrated. He's a former player and star of the team. Just felt, celebrated in uh, typical Brazilian style, and uh, it, there's a great photo of him running across the field in mm-hmm. unbridled joy. Okay. Get onto YouTube, have a look at it. Um, definitely qualifies for Game of the Week, that one. Another one for an entirely different reason is that the that the final team to break their duck in the current season in the English pyramid or, or a, a league pyramid uh, finally did it when Oliver Norwood fired home a stoppage time penalty to sink Wolves and give Sheffield United their first Premier League win of the season. Now, We've talked about this as pretty much every other football podcast has around the world, but uh, the home side put an end to a six-match losing run but still remain on the bottom of the table on goal difference. They've just taken uh, one point from the 10 other games before this long-awaited victory. So, Derek, um, Sheffield United uh, are, are a proud club and we saw when they when they first came up a couple of seasons ago uh, in the season before lockdown, just what an incredible home atmosphere that they have. And it's the first time, I think, um, in a long time that, uh, at least in the Premier League, uh, that we've seen uh, that um, that passion um, revisit uh, the uh, the United home fans. Yeah, well, it was a great uh, end to the game, wasn't it? Three goals in the last, well, I was going to say 20 minutes, but 30 minutes because the, the winning goal from Sheffield United was 90 Plus ten, wasn't it? So, um, look, I think we spoke about this last week after their their thumping by Arsenal, and we were all kind of hoping that, as much as it's kind of funny to joke about, you know, can they beat Derby County's eleven? I think now they're now moving on to four points. That it's not what we want to see. It's not what anyone wants to see. Uh, you know, Sheffield United have their own reasons for doing business like they did. You know, that they didn't do a Nottingham Forest had sort of signed 35 players. And to be fair, Nottingham Forest could probably turn around and say, well, we did the right thing because we're now competing very nicely in the Premier League. But, uh, you know, I just think it's just a, a good win, probably the right kind of opposition to do it as well. I mean, Wolves beat Man City, remember? So in that old playground school thing of my team beat your team and you, your team beat my team, does that mean that Sheffield United are better than Man City? Uh, but... They, you know, Wolves are kind of a good, good opposition for them, really, that, that they could, you know, potentially not going to be firing all cylinders away from home. Um, and yeah, look, uh, fair play to Oliver Norwood, he, he kept his cool mm-hmm. at the end. There would have been a lot of pressure on that kick, uh, particularly after the way that Wolves scored with a minute or so to go. There would have been that gloom descending around Bramall Lane. And yes, uh, the blades are off off the bottom. Uh, I, don't, I don't, well, off, off the, off the, uh, not off the bottom, but they're, Often running, I uh, still think it's a long season ahead, but they'll be able to build on this, I'm sure. Yeah, now look, hopefully um, their, their fans deserve uh, better than what they've been getting. And uh, like you say, you never want to see a team, admittedly, um, they're uh, you know, odds-on favourites to go back down again, but to just have a miserable season after the excitement of, of promotion. Uh, your team of the week, mate? Yeah, I've been promising this, this one for a while, and I've decided to go for Girona. Uh, so if anyone that's been following La Liga this season will probably be as stunned as I am to see that Girona are top of the league. Now, the first thing I needed to do was actually go and look where Girona was on a map because I, I couldn't tell you. And I have a relatively good geographical knowledge of Spain. Um, it, the answer is it's in northern 
Catalonia, and it's famous for being the scene of some Game of Thrones episodes. Uh, it's also apparently got the best restaurants in the world. It's quite a bougie place to go and visit, by all accounts, but certainly not not famous for its football team. But they are top of the league, and they uh, they beat Osasuna four two away, and that combined with Real Madrid uh, struggling uh, to get past Rayo Vallecano, that was nil nil. And now uh, uh, Girona have a record of 10 uh, wins, one draw and one loss. So this this is the story in Europe this season, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, we've got Spurs at the top of the Premier League. We mentioned Bayer Leverkusen in Germany, but this this trumps them all by, by some distance there. Um, there were two, one down at one point, away at Osasuna, but one 4-2. Uh, their ground holds 14,000 people, um, so it's not, it's not a big ground. Finished tenth last season, and that, that that was felt like it was a an overachievement. Um, lost most of their best players as well last season, uh, as well to various clubs. Um, Oriol Romeu, who you might remember from Chelsea days, he's gone now to Bar- to Barcelona. But uh, they brought in some um, new talent, and obviously they're they're, they're absolutely um, you know above uh, you know above everyone. They've got a salary cap of or their limit is 52 million euros so compare that to real madrid which is 700 million euros so that just gives you the comparison of how these two clubs are, are competing um they are a very attacking team as well so this is no part of the bus football they're the top goal scorers uh, in europe i believe at the moment and uh, last season they had um a 6-2 or 5-3 or 4-2 um, so that, that very entertaining fair for those of them that make make it to the to the ground there. Um, it should be mentioned though that this isn't necessarily the fairy tale story that, that that it looks like. It certainly is, but they are part of the city group, and and I'd, I'd forgotten there about that. There was always that. a sting in the tail. Yeah, so there's this sting in the tail. So they're part owned by Pep Guardiola's brother. um and they uh yeah they're they are in the city group so let's take nothing away from what uh the manager who has got one name michelle and what he has managed to do with this team progressive football and yeah when you compare the 50 million euros to the 700 million euros that real Real madrid have for their uh, player salaries i mean whether you're in the city group or not edge and that is an advantage as we've seen here in Australia, to a certain extent, um, you've got to give them all the credit in the world. Well, I think your team of, of the week, Edge, um, doesn't quite have the, the patronage that uh, Girona have, um, Edge, because we we, uh, uh, we love their um, their bohemian background and not the least uh, uh, reason we love them, of course, is the fact that there's a couple of Aussies doing well. But uh, Edge St. Pauli, they just keep on going. From, they've sort of flattered to... Uh, uh, to make attempts to get to the top flight over the past couple of seasons. But, you know, early days, but it sort of feels like there's something going on down there. Well, my team of the week is St. Pauli from Bundesliga 2, not because of Conor Metcalf and Jackson Irvine, two Socceroos playing their trade there, but they've, they're have they on a streak. They're top of the table, five points clear of third position, um, and they are uh, Bundesliga 1 bound if they can keep this run of form up. Um, importantly, it's worth noting that the team in second place, only two points behind them, is their crosstown rival, Hamburger. And obviously, um, a lot of people will 
know if you're really You think it's pronounced that way, H? It is hamburger. Can you give us a proper give us an effort to pronounce it properly with your best uh, German accent? I'm not going to do the German accent. Hamburger. Um, hamburger, yeah. But the, the important thing to note is these clubs are some of the most fiercest and aggressive rivals in of any German sort of local derby. Um, the town is really split down the middle, like uh, Liverpool is between Everton and Liverpool, and they're both at the top of the table. Um, and the other reason I have elected to name St Pauli. Um, as my team of the week is that um, a lot of people would know that the club uh, epitomises um, left-wing politics. Um, it's got a very impressive international supporter group uh, that has political links uh, all over the world. Um, it says that uh, it, it's, it rallies behind common causes that affect not, not just football fans, but communities outside of football too. So there's no surprise that their fans are split right down the middle on the Middle Eastern crisis that's enveloping the world at the moment. And there's been some quite significant disagreements between the fan groups at St Pauli in the stands and around the world over their stance, um, whether they support uh, the Palestinian narrative or the Israeli narrative. So um, one of the clubs, a bit like uh, a bit like politics at home, um, Rob, um, in the Labor Party, there's a split around uh, the Middle Eastern stuff and it's happening at St Pauli. Mm. And we just hope that they can put that aside and maybe focus on just this season, the football and their team getting into Bundesliga 1, Rob. Yeah, I don't think they're going to do that um, because of, you know, as you say, some of the, uh, the, the quite uh, um, strident uh, positions that the club's taken um, and uh, it hasn't all been uh, supported by, by the... Um, the, the, the supporter base, but but it is who they are. You know that's that's their reputation. That's how they've created uh, um, this identity for themselves. So um, you know who knows they might be able to do both at the same time. So uh, I don't know. You got to respect um, a, a team that, that uh, through the good and the bad stands by um, their uh, uh, their ethical positions, um, regardless of whether you agree with them provided that they're not too outrageous on either end of the political spectrum. Okay, I'm going to get back to a team that I asked our friend Pelaziri about earlier on in the week. And it's just because I love, first of all, I love the name Giancarlo Italiano, uh, but I love the fact that he uh, he's another one of those players that uh, or coaches that, uh, that doesn't have a, a top flight pedigree as a player. He's half Peruvian, half uh, Italian. His father's from Genoa. He uh, um, is um, a obviously a passionate football man and he was an understudy for, for many, many years until Ufu Katale uh, departed the uh, the top job at uh, Wellington Phoenix. So uh, he went in against Ross Aloisi on the weekend. They both had unbeaten records going into the match, both four points from two games. Um, now, Phoenix have never taken seven points from three opening A-League games until Saturday just gone. So I mean, that, that really has to be... Um, uh, underscored insofar as, as just how well that they're going. And uh, and for, for whatever reason, whether it was the, the trials and tribulations that they went through during COVID or just the fact that they've been a, a one-country team for so long, uh, there's just been something that uh, that, that the Knicks uh, 
uh, bring to the the A League competition that 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 he's remarkably likable. Uh, Oscar Zawada, he uh, he scored a, um, his his first goal of the season in in round two, but just a belted a hat trick in that five two win over over Brisbane. So he's uh, the Polish twenty seven year old uh, is is becoming a, a fan favourite pretty quickly. So uh, I'm really looking forward to to Friday night to, to go out with my good mate Johnny Yakato from Hoyts, who's a sponsor of uh, the Melbourne Victory and has been since the club uh, joined the competition and uh, and is a wonderful sponsor for our podcast as well so uh, with my good mates Lati Angelovsky from uh, the Macedonian Marvel himself and my Sri Lankan buddy Sam Amorosaker so the four of us um, are, are going to get up to to no good at Amy Park on Friday night um, enjoying it with the um, with the the, uh, the the hardcore fans in the middle of the terrace edge, that's where we'll be. Uh, as I'm sure you're going to boo the uh, opposition players like the victory fans did last week to the Adelaide boys. No, no, we probably won't do that because we won't be in amongst the terrace. Um, I was exaggerating. I expected you to call me out on that, mate. But uh, no, I'm just looking forward to a great atmosphere, and I'm looking forward to a great game. It will, it will be both, I'm sure. Okay. All right. I'm going to bring home stoppage time with with the VAR conversation. So, look, uh, Derek, why don't you uh, um, give us your hot topic before we do that? Yeah, I've gone for Phil Neville. Um, I was thinking about Phil Neville because he's in the Beckham documentary that I spoke about last week. In fact, I forgot to mention that um, that's the, my wife's favourite part of the whole Beckham documentary is Gary Neville. She'd never heard of Gary Neville before but has since become a, a huge fan, much to my chagrin, and just thinks he's one of the funniest men alive. Not that joke that he did at Beckham's wedding, which is one of the worst jokes I've ever heard. But Neville came across very well, as he always does. He's a passionate man. This is Gary we're talking about here. And he has a charm to him, doesn't he? And then Phil Neville was also in this documentary as well, wasn't he? And he was sitting there in all his glory in the Inter-Miami, obviously in his office, Inter-Miami, uh, Beckham's team. Of course, and he was giving his own thoughts. He didn't get as much airtime as 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 David as uh, his brother, and actually, it kind of dated the filming of this, didn't it? Because he's, of course, not the manager of Inter Miami. He was um, rather unceremoniously turfed out by his old buddy Beckham uh, when Messi was coming in, and Messi can't, would have articulated that he, he thought maybe a slightly higher pedigree manager uh, was required. And to be fair, he was right in the sense of despite. Um, Phil Neville's sort of some success there. He took them into the playoffs one year, although they were eliminated in the first round. He had lost 10 out of 13 games in the season that uh, Messi joined. Uh, and then obviously uh, they went on to do bigger and better things and nearly nearly had a run at it towards the end there, just ran out of games. But Neville is now uh, in the running for the Portland Timbers uh, team. Uh this is a, a man, another man, MLS uh, side, um, and uh, there's been a bit of pushback from the fans. I don't know if any of you have seen this or read the statements, but uh, there's a fan group that has said that they're deeply disappointed that the club's been linked because of his quote history of sexual, uh, sorry, sexist statements, not sexual statements. Um, yes, he he has made a few questionable uh, statements. I won't repeat uh, in this show, but they're they're, they're not great. Well, well without repeating um, them um, and mm. dignifying them too much, uh, can can you allude to the 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 tenor of his um, sort of sprays? Oh, I'd, I'd say sort of draconian views on the role of women in society and in the home environment mm-hmm. would be would be the would be the 
the ballpark for the uh, for the discussions. And of course, this is a guy who led the uh, the England women's team uh, to sort of medio mediocrity before Serena took over and, and, and made them European champions. But they've said that yeah, they are they're disappointed. Um, but they've also said that he also lacks a proven track record as a manager, and I, and I actually have to agree on that. We've spoken about you know the the England uh, the England kind of mediocrity didn't do too well at uh, Inter Miami as well. Basically got a, a job from his mate, um, but I, I feel uh, you know the, the rights to be questioning why Phil Neville would suddenly turn up at this club. I don't have a vendetta against Phil Neville, who's a fine player enjoyed his kind of combative style, really made, you know, really made that central midfield role for Everton as a kind of spoiler, did it to Arsenal a few times, uh, made made it his own. He was a great, great pro for, for Man United and for for Everton. But I do I do wonder about these jobs that, say, Wayne Rooney getting the job at Birmingham with very little kind of experience, um, Frank Lampard, Steven Gerrard, and people of this generation that don't have a good, track record in management I know you've got to get you've got to cut your teeth somewhere um but but clearly the uh, the Portland Timbers uh fan base at least a portion of them uh, are not impressed that it, it does feel a little, a little bit like jobs for the boys and uh I just suppose all manager wannabes out there will be going onto their ex or twitter feeds and they need to start deleting some of this stuff don't they because it's gonna it's gonna happen more and more often that uh that these kinds of uh, these comments on social media will will resurface to bite you at some point. Yes, it's a lesson not only for football coaches, Derek, but for people in uh, their general careers. They need to be careful what they say on open forums. It can come back and bite you, can't it, Rob? Well, it absolutely can. I mean, the uh, the digital footprint um, is uh, is there forever. So, regardless of whether you go back and, and start deleting stuff, you you got to be called to account forever. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's not going to change um, any time uh, in the future. But well said, Derek, and um, and it'll be interesting to see if he does get that gig and uh, and just how he goes because uh, he's obviously got a, a stone in his shoe about his coaching career that he wants to resolve, and he's not ha- happy uh, with with his current uh, sort of. Uh, uh, credentials as, as a manager because as you say he's done nothing um, so uh, if he gets this gig it'll be interesting to see if he uh, if he can get a tune out of them or uh, if he gets the ass again uh, edge Erin um, Kunda's red card I, I got to tell you I felt pretty hot under the collar um, I thought a, a veteran pro like Chris Economides uh, uh, and and the and the send-off that he got once he, he got the red card from victory obviously that rivalry between uh, Adelaide United and Melbourne victory doesn't need any more spice but it got another uh, layer of it in in that game uh, but uh, regardless of what happened I think Nestria and Kunda he's, he's learned a pretty harsh lesson from uh, from that red card well, he had, a, he had a bit of a rough night and I think it would be a, a learning experience for him because you probably remember, right, Miranda was sent off for Melbourne Victory and he was sent off for, for two fouls on Iren Kunda. It was very clear that Victory were targeting Iren Kunda um, and he didn't get a lot of protection from the referee and that's what... Um, so during the game, he was a victim. The crowd was booing him. Um, it was a bit unsavoury at times. The tension, um, the rivalry was there for everyone to see and importantly... Um, Importantly, um, it was the comments of the referee to Carl Viet on the sidelines, when uh, which Viet uh, resurfaced in the post-match press conference when he said he asked Alex, the referee, why didn't he um, provide Aaron Kunda with a foul? You know, what? Why didn't he get a free kick? 
uh, in the lead up to the to the outburst uh, when Aaron Quinto had a crack at the referee and and the referee said that he told him that he had to be stronger and and that really as far as it goes in sort of incited um, Nestori's response so there's a there's quite a few layers to this sort of issue there was the whole tension in the in the in the game um, the fact that it was involved in Miranda sent off and then obviously uh, the referee um, needling uh, Erin Quinder, which is probably not the referee's job. I know referees get emotionally involved in the game and I've been a victim of uh, the odd referee spray from time to time when you when you sort of cross the line, but referees have to be a lot more patient than the players, put it that way. So there's just a lot to it. Um, but I must admit, when you look at the replay of the, of the lead-up to his second yellow card, how he did not get a foul for three clear infringements. Erin uh, mm. Kunda was desperately hard done by. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, seventeen years old, he's lit up the A League so far, and uh, he'll uh, he'll sit on uh, on the bench uh, and uh, and think about it. But uh, you know, Carl Viet and uh, and the the, the coaching uh, uh, group at, um, at at Adelaide United Edge are, um, are well and truly equipped to, uh, to 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 throw their arms around the young fellow, aren't they? I just want to segue back to my initial Copa Libertadores. You asked me how important this is, and in my notes I forgot to mention it. It only took me 10 seconds. That one of the players uh, playing for Fluminense was uh, the f- former Brazilian left-back Marcelo Rob. He's 35, mm-hmm. and he returned to his boyhood club in February after a short spell with Olympiacos, which followed 16 seasons at Real Madrid. When he was asked after the game what the title meant to him, he said, uh, I thought this would sum it up beautifully and I should have said it to you when you asked me before. I don't want we'll get Adam to edit what you're saying now and then just put it in at the beginning of the show. <laughs> Keep going. Can... Keep going. I'm joking. Okay, right. Yeah. He said, uh, Real Madrid will understand. I spent 16 years there, but it's the most important title at club level I've ever won because it's the club that raised me, Marcelo, um, told ESPN. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm winning a very important title with my favourite club, the club that gave me all the tools to have my career with the employees who saw me grow up. There's nothing more rewarding in football than that. It's priceless. So that was what it meant to Marcelo, who spent 16 years at Real Madrid. I think that was, I meant to say that when you asked me that question earlier, Robin. Uh, in my notes, I missed it. I just wanted to say that because I thought it was a beautiful piece of language to describe what Copa Libertadores means it, to people exactly. from that part of the world. Well, Edgy, if there's nothing else I know that if you've got something to say, you're going to say it. So let's just call that the postscript to your game of the week as we revert back to where we were in our hot topics. And here am I sort of, you know, I've teed one up for you both beautifully. Um, we've had plenty of opportunities to talk about it. But um, I, I just wanted to wrap up with, I mean, more broadly, you know, and I was very very conscious of the fact that um, that Liverpool had yet to play. So if you didn't happen to notice that I, I, I wasn't sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, enjoying the shade and forward too much of what had happened, then, you know, I, I'll confess that that was one of the reasons. And it duly worked out that uh, that Liverpool uh, didn't uh, have the comfortable win against Luton Town that, uh, uh, that I'd hoped that they would. But Anthony Gordon, um, so there were at least four incidents in this, weren't there? There was the potential for the ball to be out of play. There was the foul. There was the offside. And uh, and then there was uh, the uh, four minutes that Stuart Atwell took to decide what was going on. Um, and look, I, I'm going to go to you first, Derek. And, and you did in the main show. You were rather, as I used the term then, sanguine about this whole thing. But the... The outrage that Arteta felt afterwards was was about just 
how not only valuable to the, the title race these points were, but in terms of the financial uh, uh, element of, of a club and all of the effort that they go to, that they really should have had uh, at least a point out of this and, and there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah, he's obviously a very passionate man, isn't he, Arteta? I think we see his antics uh, on the touchline and very much uh, pressure-testing the uh, the boundaries of his technical area. And then you get a mic shoved in your face, you know, moments after the game and you're, you're expected to react. So if, I, if I draw back to Antonio Conte, he made a similar point in it when he was, uh, you know, uh, setting fire to his Spurs career, you know, moaning about the fact that in other countries it's not just the manager who has to come out and, uh, and, and face the media. And, of course, it's that hot take world that we live in now where everyone's looking for the narrative and everyone's looking for the quote. So, you know... You, you, you tee him up, and then he and, and then he goes off, and that's why I didn't take the opportunity myself to uh, to go in on this because again, this isn't Sky Sports News, and I don't think our listeners sort of come to it for you know raging hot takes from from me. Uh, I always will will look at the, the the bigger picture. Like at the end of the day, like my view on VAR is is very clear. I hate it. I I, I, I love the fact you know I'm relieved I'm not you know still in London going to watch Arsenal games in a VAR world, I think I'd be absolutely tearing my hair out um, at the good, the bad and the ugly. And you know, the simple fact is that for whatever reason, we we um, requested for perfection um, in the game, but I don't think we needed to go for perfection. Uh, I think there is a worrying, as an aside, there is a worrying standard of refereeing problem. I think that's systemic. But then you just, you know, the, the, the VAR's just compounding it because you're getting not just Arsenal, I mean, Liverpool were the, um, the victim of some terrible, uh, terrible VAR decision a few weeks ago against Spurs where they drew the, drew the wrong line on the pitch. Mm. And uh, it cost, cost Liverpool possibly all three points or at least a point at, uh, at White Hart Lane. So these, um, these the, the, you know... The, they, they, they keep coming, these decisions, and it's not just the subjective decisions. It's not the ones where is in an elbow, offside or onside, or, you know, is the, is in a natural arm uh, or whatever. These are just wrong. There's wrong decisions. So it's an aberration of the system, the technology, the people wielding the technology. Um, I'm very sympathetic to Arteta in the fact that he's on the pitch every day planning for these games meticulously to the degree I just wake up in the morning, look at the score and watch a four-minute highlights package. So I, mm-hmm. I take less out of it. But it's, it's clear that, you know, we're only going, this is only going to continue. And, and, and I can only hope from an Arsenal point of view that in the laws of averages, these these things average out. So before they averaged out when it was just the referee making bad decisions, now it's, will it average out with the VAR making bad decisions? So mm-hmm. as I said in the main show, you know, Arsenal weren't great. Uh, the reason they lost the game is not necessarily because of this. It's because they didn't score one or two goals to win the game themselves. Um, and I'm sympathetic to a manager who gets a microphone shoved in his face two minutes after the game and has asked for his opinion. So no doubt he will get punished severely for what he said. Um, uh, and it'll be interesting to see what happens next. Yeah, it will be. I'd love to see a goggle box uh, episode of VAR. Um, to actually watch what goes on when these guys are panicking and trying to work out what decision to make. It, 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 that would be Comedy Central. Um, guys, let's wrap it up there. Um, it's been another 
great episode. I know we range uh, across the world and we rewind sometimes, Edge, don't we? If we've forgotten to say something and add it in <laughs> later on. Yeah. But uh, it is yeah, interesting. Yeah. And I, I urge people to... For your to, great to... entertainment, we do. Exactly. Well, jump onto YouTube if you if you haven't had a look at the highlights of that game. It was fair to colour, excitement, spectacular, all the things you described. So it's, uh, you know, the three-minute packages are my favourite friends in trying to, to get re- prepared for this show because you can't watch every single game, can you? Mate, Edge, uh, till next week. Yep, look forward to that. Have a great week, people. Get out to see an A-League men or women's game if you're in Australia uh, and enjoy your football. And Derek, thank you. No worries. And I can't believe this wasn't mentioned, Rob. Obviously, uh, Diaz and, and the goal and, yeah, you I know, his father is still, you know, kidnapped and uh, that situation doesn't look like it's resolving itself. So, you know, thoughts with, with him and he was very brave to not only get on the pitch but get a goal as well. So, uh, fair play yeah, to him. No, that was incredible and an appropriate way to end our second uh, edition of Stoppage Time in two weeks uh, with with a shout out as well and uh, and to to his family. So we we do hope that um, whilst that that goal uh, would have uplifted them, that um, the return of his father safely uh, will uh, will be uh, top of their their minds all the way through. Adam, thank you, Adam Maloney, our uh, friend in the glass behind the glass, uh, pressing the buttons and making sure this is all edited and uh, comes together just the way that uh, you get to hear it. And to you, thank you again for listening. Our listeners as we really do appreciate your support. Uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Box to Box, Stoppage Time and Offside, wherever you get your podcast. Tweet us at Box to Box and follow us on X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it, uh, and like us on Facebook. And make sure you join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.